This is the Wellness Puzzle Podcast with Andrew Jobling, author, speaker, educator, entrepreneur, and AFL player. Join Andrew as he continues his lifelong journey as a student of human behavior. This podcast will help you live your passion, explore your potential, step into your power, and embrace your possibilities. Embrace your possibilities. possibilities. Andrew Jobling here. This is the Wellness Puzzle Podcast, and I'm excited. In fact, so excited I could sing, but I won't. Instead, what I'll do is I'll introduce you to Tina Davidson, and she is my guest. Tina is a musician and a composer and has been doing this for over 45 years, and she's got some amazing talent, amazing stories. She's just published her first book, Let Your Heart Be Broken, and this is a really powerful podcast about her journey. I'm not going to tell you too much because I want you to be surprised and delighted by this conversation of a lady who's been through a bit. She's used music to really, I guess, portray and communicate so many powerful messages in this world. And the message of let your heart be broken is a very powerful message that will come through very strongly in this podcast. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Tina Davidson. Tina, hello there. How wonderful to be with you. Oh, it's wonderful to be with you. Yes. Do you know what I'm really excited about? The fact that you're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is a very special place for me. I heard. Tell us more. It's such a small world, isn't it? America is such a massive, massive country. And I don't know, what's the population of Lancaster? I think it's about 65,000. Okay, so it's not small, but in the big picture of the whole country of the United States and all the states and all the cities Mm -hmm. and all the towns. And a few years ago, 2016, I was running a writing weekend in the US and I was looking for somewhere and I landed on Pennsylvania. And then why Lancaster? Because it was probably the most central to where a lot of people were. Mm -hmm. And so we landed in this beautiful town called Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and spent probably about four or five days there. And it was such a beautiful town that you live in. Well, not only that, the surrounding, this is called kind of a fertile basin. So there's beautiful agricultural land here. And it has been mostly bought up by Amish farmers. And not everybody is happy about that. And the Amish don't like to sell it to the English. In other words, to people who are non-Amish. But I always feel that they're holding the property in trust for us. So they're very small farms, about 100 acres. They sometimes have electricity. They sometimes don't. But it's really beautiful land, and it's sort of in its own natural preserve. The town itself has got so much character and charm and Mm -hmm. friendliness, and it was a wonderful experience. It was cold. It was the wrong time of the year. It was early (laughs) December or late November, so it was cold. Apart from that, it was beautiful. Anyway, just thought we'd chat about Lancaster because it's such a beautiful part of the town. So how are you? I am good. And I do want to say that I moved to Lancaster a little more than 20 years ago. And I had lived in Philadelphia for 25 years. And that's sort of where I got my musical beginnings. I had graduated from college in the mid-70s and had come down to live in Philadelphia. And I was going to spend one year there. I was getting to know my father a little bit better, my biological father. And then I thought I'd go to the big city. I was going to go to 
New York City and be the composer, you make know, it you're going to be big. Well, not make it big, but, you know, rough and tough tumble. But Philadelphia was very, very good to me. It was cheaper to live in than in New York. I became very early on associated with a new music ensemble and was able to uh, become a not only a performer with them, but a director. And then I wrote music for them. So I got a lot of hands-on application of sort of living music. And Philadelphia had a lot of grants. It had a lot of ensembles. Yeah. As an Australian, when I think about music, one of the cities that comes to my mind is Philadelphia. Is because mm-hmm. there's a Philadelphia orchestra, isn't there? The, the Philadelphia and Orchestra, yeah. And that's a very well known orchestra. Well, to me, it makes sense that Philly is the yeah. place that you ended up to do. It, it, was, your stuff. it was really, yeah, it was a very, very good choice. I have a niece that is just graduated from art school and living in Boston. And I was just saying to her, I'm so glad you're doing that. You know, just get into a big city where there are lots of opportunities. Life can be kind of grungy. You might have a small apartment. But if you really want to do your work, you know, so you have five or six jobs, you know, that maybe you're house cleaning. I house cleaned. I did accounting. I did a lot of different things so that I could then spend time writing music. It Mm. sort of supported my vice and my vice was writing music. So I actually had lots of part-time jobs. I never had any jobs in the morning so I could write in the morning and then I'd go off to my various jobs. So yeah, I I loved Philadelphia and I love Lancaster and I love writing music. Wonderful. (laughs) Well, we're going to talk more about your journey and your story in the music industry and you've done amazing things. Tina, tell us what you're doing now in Lancaster. How are you keeping your time? What's inspiring you? What's exciting you? What gets you bouncing out of bed in the morning to rock and roll? We you know, before we I have always you, rock and roll, so. <laughs> right. I've always been really fortunate that I love to wake up in the morning. It's like my favorite thing to do. When Tell I, us why, because I think there's a lot of people would like to know how do I love waking up in the morning? What makes you love I, it so much? I, I don't know. When I go to bed, it's kind of hard for me to go to sleep. I mean, I don't really want to go to sleep. I don't love sleeping. I mean, I'm I'm a good sleeper, but you know, I do sleep pretty well, but. Just the idea of waking up and having a cup of coffee and having a new day and just starting, you know, I I have my little things that I do in the morning. I always sit with my dogs and I check all the news. And then I always, because as a career in music, I always feel I have to be reading and writing, feeding my music. So I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of journaling. So I don't know. Ever since I was a child, I was always somebody who woke up with a smile on my face. So, Well, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think that's something we should all do because who knows what amazingness could happen in a new day, like what opportunities Mm -hmm. there are or what we could do or who we might meet or what idea might come to us or what inspiration Mm -hmm. could come to us. I think if we can wake up with that expectation, it's going to be a great day. I think a lot of people would wake up very differently. Yeah, no, I love waking up. So what do I do that's exciting? Well, I have a great schedule. I'm only teaching music and composition two days a week. Usually I teach four. So I only have two days a week. So that means I have five days to do the things I really want to do, which is write music. I'm doing a lot of prose writing about the field of music as well. I do a lot of drawing because I love to sometimes stop being, I I tend to be sometimes a little bit too intellectual. 
So drawing is a great thing to do because I can just let my hand move and not think about it too much. I'm a happy gardener. And so I'm just having a great life. Awesome. And you're an author as well, Tina? Yes. So I just published in March a memoir called Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. And that is a book that really talks about not only my little strange life, I'm sure a lot of us have strange lives, also my writing life, my composing life, and my composing process, and how a lot of times when I've been dealing with childhood difficulties as an adult, I find that I'm composing about them as well. So that it all sort of seeps into my music. Mm. And when you say in the title is Let Your Heart Be Broken, tell yeah. us a bit about the meaning and the message behind yes, the Yes, and I can read you just a tiny little bit from my book. Wonderful. So in the 80s, I was in a conference run by Stephen Levine, and this was the time when there was the AIDS epidemic and people were dying, you know, friends, especially in the arts, friends were dying, and it was a really scary time. You didn't know if you could get it from having a blood transfusion, you know, there was a lot of fear at that time. And this was a conference that was aimed at the caretakers. So many of these people who were dying of AIDS had loved ones who were taking care of them and having to live through these very difficult times. So I was with Stephen Levine in New York City, and he was asked, he said, oh, you know, I'm always asked, what is the meaning of life? And he said, well, I don't really know. But then I think the meaning of life is let your heart be broken. And then I write, the heart, the round sphere of your being, let your heart be broken, allow, expect, look forward to the life that you have so carefully protected and cared for, broken, cracked, rent in two, heartbreakingly, your heart breaks. And in the two halves, rocking on the table is revealed rich earth, moist, dark soil, ready for a new life to begin. Wow. And you wrote that. Yes, I did. You're a very clever girl. <laughs> You're putting me to shame. I'd start yeah. thinking about some of the stuff I write in my books and it's nowhere oh. near as good as that. <laughs> my gosh. Well, thank you very much. You're thank an artist you. for sure. Yeah. And how's the book going since it's been it's, released? It's been going really well. I think this book appeals to a very broad spectrum of people. It's sort of appeals to people who are interested in people's lives and traumas and how you get through them. And then it really appeals to people who are spiritually interested. So I talk a lot about through the traumas, how I've grown spiritually. And then people love to sort of peep into an artist's life and see how they might do their work, how they create their work. So I think that it does appeal to a lot of people. It's getting some good reviews. And I'm most touched when people send me emails and they'll say, couldn't put your book down. I was up to four o'clock in the morning. And that is just really touching and lovely. Yeah. You're having yeah. an impact, which is awesome. Yes. Tana, we might have a quick little break and then okay. I want to come back and really dig into your journey and how it all started. And you talked about the trauma in your own heartbreak. Let's, if you're happy to share, we would yes. love to hear about that journey and how you've now sort of transitioned yourself to where you are today, living in this beautiful town, doing wonderful things and waking up with a smile every day. We'll be yes. back after a short break. 
Everyone has a book inside us waiting to be written and Adri Jobling can unleash the hidden author in you. Have you ever wanted to become a successful author and impact many lives? Andrew will support, guide and mentor you through the entire process and help you leave your legacy for the world. Contact Andrew for a free 30-minute chat about the influence you want and can have. Go to andrewjobling.com.au to find the author in you. Tina, you have been composing, performing, writing for how long now? 45 years. Plus so you started when you were three, clearly. <laughs> I started playing music when I was five. And what um, were you playing at five? I was playing the piano. My mother was teaching me. And by seven, I was practicing an hour a day. And wow. my mother had to bribe me with five cents an hour. Wow, like a lot that, of money. Whoa. Well, that is a lot of money back in those days, particularly for a seven-year-old. <laughs> right. And then later on, I renegotiated to 10 cents an hour. Wow, that's a so, good renegotiation. Yes. A 100% increase. So, yes, there you go. I don't think I really got the money. I think my mother was always sort of banking it. I just don't ever recall getting the money. But <laughs> whatever got you on the piano. On the piano, yes. And I think for me. So it wasn't a music- dream of yours. It sounds like it was a dream of hers initially. Yes, she was a professor of literature and she was an avid violinist and she really thought that all her children should play an instrument. So I did that. I was very compliant. And I think that music created for me a very safe space. Uh, Certainly people don't bother you when you're practicing because you're doing what you're supposed to do. But I think it was also a little bit like going into a lake and you put your head under the water and maybe you open your eyes and it's kind of murky and can't really see very well. And the sound is going woo woo. And I would feel very sort of protected and safe. And I think music had that kind of safety for me. So I'm imagining it sounds like quite an early stage in this process where your mum is bribing you to play the piano. It sounded like mm-hmm. quite quickly it was something that you started to love and really yes. want to do. Yes. Although I loved reading too, and I was an avid reader. And one time I tried to read my book while I was practicing. So I had memorized my music and then put my novel up on the piano and I would be playing away and reading the music. And my mother, you know, she didn't notice a lot of things that was happening with the kids because she was busy. But my piano teacher kind of figured out that I hadn't been practicing. So that didn't last for very long. Well, the fact that you can actually read a book and practice piano <laughs> at the same time. Oh, it is was not very, very... impressive. <laughs> I that, don't know, the... multitasking. I don't know if that's such a good idea. Well, I think the whole multitasking is a little bit of a myth, really, isn't it? Yes, I agree. You yes. can't yeah. focus on two things at the same time. Not really. Anyway, well, certainly as a male, that's in no way known a possibility. I think it's more possible for a female, certainly, than a male. But I think even we so- try to pretend that it's possible. But I do think that it means that both of the things you're doing is probably you're distracted from getting both half of them, attention. So. If you're doing two things, like, for example, I might be writing on one point and then checking my emails on another, I'm not doing them at the same time. I'm doing one or the other. Yes. 
and That's I'm not true. focused on either. So then there's that transitional time where I'm a bit easily distracted. So you're right. When you try and multitask, I think what you're doing is nothing very effectively at all. You're yes. far better just focus on one thing, get it done, then move on to the next thing. Yeah. Anyway, we digress. I want to hear about this journey. So you're a seven-year-old. You were playing piano with your toes and reading your novel and probably drinking <laughs> a drink with a straw at the same time. <laughs> and then tell us how it evolved from there. Well, I want to go back a little bit and say that I was born in Sweden. When I was six months old, I was placed in a foster home in Sweden. And then when I was three and a half, a woman appeared, an American woman appeared, and she adopted me. So you were in Sweden at the time, so she went and adopted you from Sweden. Right. And I was brought up as an adopted child. And not that my mother was, you know, treated me any differently. She then got married and had four more children. So I was the oldest of five. But I always felt a little distant, like I wasn't quite grounded. Yeah. And also, here I was placed in this foster home. So I lost that connection. And that at six months, and then at three and a half, I was then retaken to a new family. So I didn't have a lot of trust. Not that I thought about it carefully, but I can see now that I was always willing to please and always very bright and funny. And I think I felt that life was pretty precarious. Yeah. So when I was 21, I happened to have a job in Sweden, taking care of an adolescent child of a family friend for the whole summer. And I decided I would visit the adoption agency. And at first she said, oh, no, you couldn't be Swedish because we don't allow children from Sweden to be adopted by non-Swedes. And I said, but I always assumed I was Swedish. She said, well, call me back in a week and I'll see if I have any information. I'm sure we don't. So I called back in a week and it was the day before I was leaving Sweden and uh, flying back to the U.S., And she said, oh, I'm so glad you called because I have information for you. And so I went down and she was reading from this letter. She said, this is from your birth mother and your birth mother is your adopted mother. So that kind of tilted my world. So your American mother was in Sweden, gave birth to you, put you up for adoption, then she changed her mind or circumstances she put No, changed. she just put me in the foster, foster home. And then three and a half years later, she returned. How did that news affect you? Well, I had lived my whole life up at that point with this word adoption, which meant I don't really belong. I don't have a place. When they talked about family history, I would think, oh, that's wonderful. I wish it were my family history. I wonder what my family history is. And to find out that I had this connection, even though I didn't know about it, it was very disorienting. And I think for my mother, she was, she had made a smart plan, which was she'd had an illegitimate child in the 50s. Women were treated very badly. She would not have been able to be a professor at the university. And so she created this story. And it was very smart. It protected her and it protected me. However, she bought into the secret and never told anybody. So she didn't tell my stepfather. My siblings didn't know. Her mother didn't didn't know. Nobody knew. 
and she didn't tell me. That's interesting that the agency actually gave you that information because it sounds like that would be confidentiality between them and your mother, wouldn't it? Or you well, I guess you're Sweden, eligible for that information. Because- yes. I think Sweden has different rules and regulations. I think they're very open-minded about those kinds of things. So uh, the book talks a lot about this very complicated story and also that my mother did it for good reasons, but then a secret can become almost like a puppeteer. Yeah. You know, I write about it as being your own personal Frankenstein. It's clacking around and you have to sort of modify things around your secret. If something comes up, you know, you have to, it's always. So are you still keeping that secret even after you knew? I didn't want to, but she didn't want me to tell anyone. Your mom didn't want you to tell anyone. Right, because she had become very invested in this idea of herself not having had an illegitimate child, even though it was many years afterwards and probably there would have been no consequences. I think it's just a very interesting moral or story about choices you make and how those choices can affect you. If my mother had at some point when I was 13 or 14 say, hey, honey, This is not something that we can talk about with other people, but I want to tell you that I'm your mother and I love you and I claim you, you're mine. Maybe we can talk to other people about it, you know, when you get older, but right now we have to just keep it private between us. That would have been very plausible. Yeah. So when you found out, was your heart broken? Was that maybe one of those times when you said, let your heart be broken? You know where my heart was broken is that when I left Sweden, and I didn't know this until I was in my 30s and I was having my only daughter, and I'm holding her and I'm realizing, you know, you're pretty angry about this. You really either can kind of pretend it's not there and she'll inherit the mess from you, or you can go really take action and do some hard work, go to do some therapy, do whatever you need to do to get over this anger. And what I uncovered was not only did I have a lot of anger and upset about my mother not telling me, but that Swedish family, when I was three and a half, it was like they were in a car accident and they all died. Never heard from them. They just never heard from them. And I couldn't talk to my mother about it. Because, you know, she didn't want me to talk about the past life. So what I found in my 30s is that that's where my heart had been broken when I was three and a half and I left. Because that was my family and my three brothers. And one of them was only a couple of months older than I was. So we were brought up as twins. We slept in the same room. We were potty trained together. We got into trouble together. And that had just disappeared. And you have not spoken to any of them ever since. Well, in this book, I talk about, I came back when my daughter was three and a half. I spent a couple of weeks in Sweden reconnecting with them. And then I came back when she was 10 and I lived there for about five weeks reconnecting with the family. Unfortunately, when I started to really uncover this and get in touch with the family, my foster mother, Solveig, had just died. Yes. So that was another heartbreak. But I think that's where my personal experience is, is that getting through that, coming to that heartbreak, 
not hiding it or pretending it's not there. It's just this wonderful learning. And, you know, when I talk about rich soil, I'm I'm really mean it's this wonderful, well-nurtured soil that all these possibilities can come up in that soil. So I think letting your heart be broken is very personal to me. Yeah. And then while I was doing a lot of this therapy, I was also writing a lot of music and it was sort of coming into my music. For instance, I have a piece called Dark Child Sings for Cello Quartet. And it's really about that dark child in me that I wanted to let out and have a voice in my life. I think there's a lot of artists, whether it's art, painting, drawing, certainly Mm -hmm. music, seems to be inspired by a lot of heartbreak doesn't it or certainly personal experiences personal tragedy that seems to be the platform for a lot of amazing works of art i think heartbreak is unavoidable yeah i think you're right we've just got to be open to heartbreak because Mm -hmm. it's going to happen we set ourselves up for it every single day when we expect something we expect someone to do something say something behave a certain way and when they don't in a way our heart is broken while you were telling that story tina even the label of illegitimate child is a heartbreaking label isn't it awful? you're a child who cares whether <laughs> your parents were married not married whether it was a intended or unintended you are a child of god you are meant to be and this whole label that people get born out of wedlock or illegitimate who cares you're a human yes. being with the heart and feelings and potential and possibility to do amazing things in this world i just wish we could drop all these ridiculous labels that people carry for the rest of their lives and it breaks their heart it does and the only way to get through something is to go into it you just got to get through you just got to go and i just feel so grateful at all the wonderful things that are on the other side of that not that you know you have a heartbreak and it's over you know, you're going to have another one tomorrow. or And that heartbreak, you know. it's never over. There's oh. always remnants of a heartbreak. Right. What do they say? It just changes clothing and gets back in line. It's like, wait a minute. Haven't I seen you before? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, Tina, we haven't touched on music much at all at the moment, mm-hmm. but that's all right. We can have another break and we can come back. But this has been really powerful. And thank you for sharing that story. That oh, was an incredible story. And I think there's a lot of beautiful lessons and inspiration wrapped up in what you just told us. So let's have another quick break. We can have a glass of our favourite liquid, water, and we'll be back. The shedding of tears after a significant achievement, a meaningful moment or purposeful pursuit is an indication of the powerful emotional joy we all strive for in our lives. What if there was a process for personal transformation that could lead to regular tears of joy moments? In Tears of Joy, Andrew Joblin provides the simple steps that will predictably lead to many meaningful moments of significance, achievement, and well-being. This book offers a sure and certain pathway to transformation that lasts. To purchase Tears of Joy or any of Andrew's other books, go to andrewjobling.com.au. Tina, we're just enjoying our water, aren't we? We're just saying, what a beautiful fluid it is it's our favorite beverage Mm -hmm. life-giving lots and lots of yummy pure hydrating life-giving water yes fabulous simple things in life Mm -hmm. wow tina that was awesome what a story and you shared it so beautifully so obviously a lot of your creativity your artistic 
writing and composing has come out of the heartbreak you've experienced in your younger years. Tell us now how that sort of really took off for you. What was first for you? Were you performing? You were writing, you were composing. Tell us how that all sort of evolved. So I was performing and also composing at the same time. And then I had a difficulty at the dentist. (laughs) I actually got an infection through just a dental cleaning that damaged my heart. And Okay, so it was literally broken. It was literally broken. And uh, for about nine years, I had congestive heart failure. And at the beginning of that, I decided that I couldn't do everything. I couldn't do all these hundreds of jobs and just running around like crazy. And so How I old were you at that time, Tina? Sorry to I was 29. Wow, when I got, yeah. yeah. So I decided that I would choose to either be a performer or a composer. And fortunately, I decided I'd be a composer. Can I just ask you, Tina? What is a composer? Can you just define composer from someone like me who's not very musically minded? Is that the person? That writes the music. That writes the music. Okay. Right. So instead of being an artist where I play with paints or colors, I deal with notes, sound, and music is really a sound and the duration of sound. So it's really sound. It is time, how long something is, how long a piece is. It's also really important part of music is silence. The silence before a piece begins, sometimes silence in a piece, you know, that maybe you'll have multiple instruments playing, but some of them are not playing. So it's not just writing the music, it's also putting it together. It's creating a piece of right musical art. Right. right. And sometimes it also involves taking that music and orchestrating it So you're writing a piece and then you're going to have orchestrate it for an ensemble to play, let's say piano and multiple strings, or it's going to be for orchestra. So then you have to think about how do instruments sound when they play together? If a string section is playing, the violins are playing, and you add a flute to play the same melody, how does that sound versus you have a string section and you add a clarinet or an oboe? So you have to learn those kinds of combinations of sounds, Wow! which is really fun. But for me, writing music is always about telling a story. You have a beginning, you have a middle and the end. And my form of music is more like a journey. So let's say you're on a train and you're in the countryside. So you get this beautiful sort of bucolic kind of music. And then suddenly you're in the city and then you get more jazzy. Maybe there's hustle and bustle you know, in the city. Hustle, right. Yeah. Then you leave the city and you're by the ocean. And maybe the story is about your trip to the oceans, let's say. What's interesting is how are you going to create a sense of traveling from the countryside into the city that makes going into the city sound just exactly where you should be. Yep. And that connection between the city and the country has to be, you have to think about like, how are we going to create it? So when you arrive at the city, you go, oh, I never expected to be here, but this is just right. This is exactly where I should be. And that's the way you have it maybe in a piece of like a story, like a short story or a novel. You're always arriving to the end of the chapter and moving on. 
But the connections between the chapter have to be orchestrated in such a way that, first of all, you want to continue reading, you have some interest, and that it makes sort of sense. So I think when you create art, it's not only emotion and rhythm, but it also has a kind of a scientific sense about it. It makes sense. It has a kind of a logic. Good on you. Wow. That blows my mind to think you can create a piece of music with multiple instruments that give you a feeling that you're in the country, traveling into the city, and then you're in the city and it's exactly where you want to be. You didn't know you'd be there. And then moving out of the city and then to the beach and how you can convey that in a piece of music, that blows my mind. It's amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's my thing. It's your thing. (laughs) And I've been doing it for 45 years. You have. I just want to say one thing, though, because I think there was a beautiful analogy. You said where the music, when you arrive in the city, it makes you feel like even though you weren't expecting to be in the city, it's exactly where you want and need to be. Isn't that such a beautiful metaphor for life as well? Every day presents us opportunities that we don't expect and maybe often don't think that we want or need, but really what life is presenting you is exactly what you need if you're open to discover and explore and find what the meaning really is. Yes. In my music, for me, there's always a sense of journey, and I always parallel that to my life. I think for the first 10 years, I was sort of writing music that was pretty angry, and it was also kind of closed off. I don't think I understood where I was. And then the next 10 years were really writing about my understanding my past and trying to integrate that into myself. And then the last 20, 25 years... I think my viewpoint has been, here I am, how do I relate to the bigger whole, to the world, or to maybe a spiritual presence or something bigger than myself? So a lot of my music now is more about that kind of exploration where it comes from me, but it's going to a place that I might not know too well because it's slightly beyond my imagination. Amazing. How do you do it? Will you just let it flow? Do you have a strategy or are you just (laughs) open to whatever comes to you? How do you create? What's your secret to creation? You could name a hundred different ways and I probably have done them all. (laughs) Sometimes it's just lighting a candle and praying for inspiration or praying for, sometimes it's wrestling with procrastination. Oh, procrastination. You know, I'm ready to write and suddenly I'm like cleaning the house or gardening or what I've learned about procrastination is that it's part of the artistic process. It means that I'm not quite ready to move. Yep. And I still need to be in that kind of cogitating place. It's not a fun place to be when, you know, I really want to write this and the world is not cooperating. (laughs) Don't you hate it when the world doesn't cooperate? Exactly. And then sometimes five minutes is a good day. Let me tell you, I've written for five minutes. I can't believe it. It feels like a good day. And then some days are four hours and it's a good day. I think there's a great lesson there is just touch it every day, whatever it is that you're working on. mm -hmm. And even some days will be five minutes. I know writing books for me, some days is five minutes and other days it's longer, but I know I'm touching it every day. I know it's moving forward every day. I know I'm creating every day. So you can feel good about yourself. Right. 
And I always love it. You know, it takes me like two hours to finally get to the piano. I'm there for five minutes. <laughs> like, like The best five be minutes it? of the day. <laughs> but, you know, it's a lifelong practice. Yep. So I think when it is a lifelong practice, then I'm more willing to go with the ups and downs because yeah. that's what it is to be an artist is sometimes it's awful and sometimes it's amazing. Well, that's what it is to be a human. Oh, that too. Yes. So Tina, (laughs) let's get down to the message that you have for people with everything you've experienced over the course of your life, everything you've achieved, everything you've created, all the things you've endured and overcome. What do you want to say to people? So somebody asked me to write a list to artists of, you know, 10 things that I could think that would be helpful to them, you know, like trust and value your own creativity. Oh, this is a good one. Talent depends on hard work. Talent demands hard work. Yeah. It's not fair, but it's true. True. It is true. Um, But I like the last one, which is dare to create yourself anew. Heartbreak, failure, being sidelined, all of these are part of life. It is how we act on these, manage them, learn, move through them and dare to try again in a strengthened position that matters. Beautiful. Wonderful. Well, I think that's a pretty powerful message to end on. Really. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you. Just been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Been great talking to you. How do people find you? TinaDavidson.com. Yep. Easy to remember. Amazon has my book. Spotify has my music. What more can you say? Awesome. Wonderful. Well, Tina, thank you again so much and well done for everything you've done and are doing. I'm sure we'll keep doing. You are having a very positive impact on this world. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute delight. What a wonderful conversation that was with Tina. And what a beautiful lady she is doing incredible stuff from a beautiful part of the world in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. If you would like to buy her book, if you would like to listen to her music, if you would like to find out more about what she's doing, go to her website, tinadavidson.com. But most of all, just let your heart be broken. Life's going to throw challenges and adversity at us and just feel it. It's okay. Feel it. Work through it. Learn from it. Become better as a result of it and move on. It's Such a powerful message that I hope you got loud and clear. Thanks for being with me this week. I'll be back again next week. Please join me. Please share this podcast with everyone you know who maybe is going through some heartbreak at the moment and not sure how to deal with it. This is a great podcast for them to listen to. I'll be with you next week. My name's Andrew Jobling. This is the Wellness Puzzle Podcast. Podcast.